Cocoa was a pit bull mix, just barely a year old. As a puppy, she was dumped on the freeway and rescued by a teenager. He handed her off to another friend who eventually gave her to yet another friend who eventually left her in the hands of an animal shelter. When Clayton and Diana laid eyes on this homeless dog, it was love at first sight. And so with three soaring hearts and one wagging tail, they brought their newly adopted pet into a loving home at last. It wasn't long, however, before they discovered a secret. Coco had some issues. With Clayton and Diana, Coco was loving and obedient. With other people, she was hostile and aggressive. They hired a a dog trainer who specialized in aggressive animals. And over the next weeks and months, Coco stopped fighting with other animals. No more random barking, no more racing through the house, no more digging in the yard. For months, they faithfully trained Coco and witnessed with delight her gradual transformation. Their story seemed destined for a happy ending. Except for one thing. Coco remained hostile toward other people. When Clayton and Diana had people over to the house, they had to keep her locked away. On walks, they had to keep her on a very short leash with a muzzle. And they especially had to keep her away from young children. In fact, Coco's aggression became so strong that it soon became unlikely that any additional training would help. And so despite their best efforts, Clayton and Diana came to the realization that they could not help this animal. And so after much discussion, they made a hard decision. They'd done all that they could. They were exhausted. And they chose to return the dog to the shelter. Now, that little story about a dog and its owners illustrates a foundational principle that I want to address today. As people, as human beings, we are limited in our effect to change relationships, whether it's with dogs or with people. We can say all the right things. We can model all the right perspectives. We can hire professionals to help us. But unless God empowers the change, we might as well try and catch the wind. But somehow we get this idea, and it's subtle in the beginning, that it's actually possible for us to do what only God can do. Kind of like a a mechanic fixing cars. We start spending immeasurable energy trying to fix other people. If we just get them to do this, or say this, or be this, we think that we can affect a change. Sometimes we even become fixated on fixing other people. But in reality, only God has the power to change hearts. Our responsibility is to speak the word in truth and to love other people with the power of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting we can't help others grow. We're certainly called to provide others with encouragement and support and point them in the right direction. But... Ultimately, we have to learn to give others the freedom to learn for themselves the obedience that Christ requires. And we must trust God's process 
in mending relationships. Now, nestled in the back of your New Testament is an interesting little letter. It's only one thin piece of paper in your Bible, sandwiched between Titus and Hebrews. It's just six paragraphs long, but it's a letter that gives us a window into a compelling story about one friend challenging another friend, asking him to take a bold step, asking him to make a fundamental change in the way that he naturally operates. The man writing the letter knows that he's testing the limits of the friendship. And as we read the story, we can even see the tension in this relationship. I want to tell you just a little bit about the story. The letter is written by Paul. Paul is the most significant leader in the church at this time in history, in the first century. He's getting older, and he's actually writing this letter as he is imprisoned by the Roman government, living under house arrest. He writes the letter to a good friend of his named Philemon. Now Philemon is a man of means. He lives in a a small town called Colossae. Somewhere in, today we would say, Turkey in Asia Minor. We don't even know how or when Paul and Philemon met. It appears, however, that Paul led Philemon to Christ. And so Philemon, this wealthy man who owns a large home in Colossae, is now one of the leaders of the house church that meets in his home. And this is where the story gets interesting. The letter that Paul sends to Philemon is carried by the hand of a runaway slave and thief, a man by the name of Onesimus, who came from the same small town as Philemon, Colossae. Now, slaves in the Roman Empire served in a variety of capacities. In fact, during this particular period in time, about a third of the entire Roman Empire was enslaved. And so slaves were entrusted with all kinds of roles. They came from various backgrounds, various races, various social and economic groups. But like every other slave, their lives were not their own. And like any other slave, Onesimus wanted more for his life. Apparently when his master and family were out of the house one day, Onesimus stole from them. And they ran as far away as he could, making the trip from Colossae all the way to Rome, 1,500 miles, where a young man could easily get lost in the crowds and explore his newfound freedom. Now eventually, we don't know how again, but eventually Paul and Onesimus meet in Rome while Paul is under arrest. And from Paul's letter to Philemon, we come to discover that Paul and Onesimus become very good friends. And after some time passed, this runaway slave gives his life to Christ. And he commits himself to the well-being of Paul, caring for him while he's in prison, keeping him company. Perhaps one night Onesimus shares with Paul his story, that he was a runaway slave. And eventually, Paul and Onesimus realize that they both know a particular person. You see, it turns out that Onesimus' former master was also Paul's good friend, Philemon of Colossae. Can you imagine 
when they come to that realization? Well, we don't know who suggested it first, Paul or Onesimus, but somehow they come to the conclusion that Onesimus should go back to Philemon and make things right, no matter what the cost was. I kind of imagine Paul saying something to Onesimus like this, listen, Onesimus, I know Philemon. Let me write a letter to him for you. Let's see if we can't resolve this conflict and maybe even bring some good out of a bad situation. See, that's the role that God often calls us to be in. To be the intercessor who brings reconciliation between others. And so with Paul's letter firmly in hand, Onesimus makes that 1,500-mile journey back to Colossae to see the man that he once wronged, to lay himself at the mercy of Paul's words and at the mercy of this former slave owner. Now this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be spending time in this little letter of Philemon as we explore our Christian calling to become people of reconciliation. And as we help the Lord change the world one relationship at a time. Now the first seven verses of the letter include Paul's greeting and some personal and historical notes. But this morning I want to focus on the middle portion of the letter as we look at some decisions that we can make to trust God's process in restoring broken relationships. There's three choices that I want us to notice. And the first one is this. The first choice we can make to trust God's process is to hold our rights loosely. Look at verses 8 and 9 for me. Paul writes, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. So in his appeal to Philemon, Paul is first willing to surrender his own authority. He is an apostle. He is a church leader. He brought Philemon to know the Lord. There's some authority wrapped up there. And yet Paul is willing to surrender that authority to the greater demand of love. In other words, he holds his rights Loosely. Paul would prefer that Philemon and us would make good decisions not because we have to, but because we come to understand it's the right thing to do for the Lord. Now, slaves were viewed as personal possessions. And Philemon as a slave owner, would have been expected to punish severely or to take revenge on one who had run away. But what was accepted in the culture was at odds with Christian morality. And Paul assumes that Philemon, as a Christian, who knows God's love, will show the same love and forgiveness in his grievance against Onesimus. And so in this way, love becomes the virtue that forms the basis of Paul's whole appeal. He doesn't use the language of fear and guilt, because that would 
reduced Philemon to a level of perhaps even acting out of fear himself. And so instead, Paul appeals to Philemon's free decision to act in a manner consistent with the equality and love between brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's kind of think about how this works in our culture. In our culture, people are at different levels, aren't they? you ever been in a group, you might notice this. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, when I was in college, I was taking a class on counseling, psychology class on counseling. And one day, the teacher came in, and she said, today we're going to be discussing group dynamics, interacting in groups, group dynamics. And so she asked us to move all of our chairs into a, a, a large circle in the classroom, probably, I don't know, 16, 18 students. We make a circle. And as we're getting all arranged, people are sitting down in their chairs. The teacher walks out the door and closes the door. And so all the students, we're all sitting there staring at one another. What do we do next? People begin to fidget, look in their backpacks, thumb through the textbook. What's going to happen? Surely she's going to come back any minute. She doesn't come back. But what happens after a few moments is that some order comes from that bit of chaos. Somebody who either desires or has a natural inclination takes leadership. Well, maybe we should do this. Somebody else who perhaps is threatened by authority says, well, I don't think we should do that. And within a few minutes, a good discussion is ensuing on group dynamics. I wonder if you've noticed this pecking order that comes to play in your relationships in places that you live. If you've ever been around a, a chicken coop, you understand that, that there's no peace until it's clear who's the greatest. They're at the top. Who's the least? They're at the bottom. And who's on every rung in between? And that plays out in our culture as well. You've seen it play out maybe in large family gatherings that you attend. Perhaps in the workplace. Or guess what? Even in the church. We want to know. Right? We want to know who's in charge. We want to know who has influence and authority. And then once we know, we begin to determine where we fit in. Or how we might influence decisions to our benefit. How we could move up the rungs. We want to know what our rights are in this system. But what I want us to understand is that our Christian faith completely redefines leadership and rearranges the lines of authority. And so what's natural in culture isn't natural in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus didn't just reverse the pecking order, he abolished it. The authority of which Jesus spoke was not an authority to, to manipulate or to control. It was an authority of function. One time when Jesus' disciples were arguing, they were arguing about who would be the greatest. Isn't that great? And Jesus responded and he said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
You see, Jesus rejects the right of any brother or sister in Christ to impose his or her will upon another. And in its place, he interjects these words for all future generations to hear. This comes from Matthew chapter 20. Jesus says, Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The spiritual authority that we have in Christ is not found in a position or a title or a right that belongs to us, but it is in love's service. Paul is allowing Philemon the freedom to work out what is demanded by love. And likewise, if we want to have any kind of influence on others for the better, if we want to be involved in, in changing others or improving our own relationships, we must learn to hold on to our rights loosely. That's the first choice that we can make. There's a second choice we can make as well as we trust God's process of reconciliation. And that is that we must consider the mutual benefit. In the conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, Paul considers the mutual benefit for everybody concerned. Not just what's good for him. Let's pick it up in verse 9. He says... Since I am such a person as Paul, an aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. There's that free will part again. Paul wants Philemon to do the right thing because he wants to do the right thing. Now, Paul is halfway through the letter, and the letter's filled with carefully chosen words, but he's halfway through before he even mentions Onesimus' name. It's a little different than us. Some of us can hardly get through our morning cup of coffee before we start mentioning the names of people that annoy us or bug us or we have an issue with. We start thinking about that. But here, Paul gives us an example of tact in handling conflict. Paul has gone to great lengths to frame his request in the context of love. Notice that Paul points to uh, the status of Onesimus as a new believer before he even mentions his name. I wonder if maybe he was anticipating Philemon saying something like, well, oh, that's what it's all about, huh? He wants me to take back that ungrateful, thieving, good-for-nothing slave. How could he? But Paul stops that argument before it even begins by 
referring to Onesimus as my child, begotten in my imprisonment. Maybe to Philemon, Onesimus seems like an unlikely candidate for God's grace. But his story is a reminder that with God, there are no hopeless cases. If that weren't true, then I certainly wouldn't be here today, and neither would you. Paul contrasts the difference the gospel makes in a person's life. Though Onesimus had run away from Philemon, he unwittingly ran smack into the Lord. And as a result, what he once was, he no longer is. His true identity is now anchored in Christ. Now, Onesimus has also been of practical use to Paul. As an aged prisoner, Paul was reliant on others to take care of his basic needs, to fix his food, to run his errands, to keep him company. So useful had he become that Paul refers to Onesimus as his very heart. And so certainly his personal preference would be that Onesimus could stay in Rome with him. But Paul puts aside his own wishes out of consideration for Philemon. By sending Onesimus back, his child, his very heart, Paul demonstrates the selfless love that he wishes to instill in Philemon. Which reminds us of this. We should never expect others to do what we are unwilling to do ourselves. You ever said, well, if they just change, if they just do this, if they would just be different. But we don't stop to think about if we would change, if we would just do this, if we would be different. You see, Paul waves his own personal interests out of a sense of responsibility to Philemon. He considers the mutual benefit of everyone involved. And that is a powerful truth. And so this morning we might ask, what are we holding on to or withholding in our relationship with others? Maybe it's the hurt and the pride that stems from being wronged unjustly. Maybe it's the need to be right or in control that has alienated friends or loved ones. Maybe it's a busy schedule that leaves little room for healthy relationships. Regardless of the specifics, ask yourself, how is this affecting my family, my church, or my relationship with the Lord? You see, if it has no eternal benefit, then we're called to lay it down for the benefit of others. We're called to lay it all at the foot of the cross where God's grace always provides benefit. There's one more thing I want you to notice here, and that is that in returning, Onesimus is also acting in love. Now, he has wronged Philemon in his own home. And granted, Onesimus carries with him this ringing endorsement from the Apostle Paul in this letter, but there is no guarantee that Philemon will honor it. Onesimus must accept with grace whatever Philemon decides, which in that day could include 
severe punishment or even death. But Onesimus is willing to take this risk. That reminds me that whenever we have unfinished business with others, it affects our relationship with God. You know, in more, than, in more than one place in Scripture, Scripture stresses the importance of making, uh, taking immediate action in settling our grievances against one another. As soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, we are called to mend it. And this is done by taking responsibility for our part and offering amends. When we procrastinate, doing what is right, we only serve to clutter up our spiritual lives. When we're carrying around a load of apologies that are owed, or we're holding a a load of resentment inside, or unexpressed remorse, it's like living in a really messy house. And we can pretend that the piles of debris aren't there, but the mess still remains. And that's what happens in our life when we don't seek reconciliation. Onesimus, as young as he was in the Lord, understands that his new faith doesn't provide an escape clause for his earthly debts. And so he commits with a repentant heart to try to make a wrong a right, whatever it will cost him. And I think in doing so, he provides a great role model for us. Do you have amends to make? Then God says, then go. Make things right while you can with family, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just focus on the changes you think are needed or what's in it for you, consider the mutual benefit. Now one word of caution. Apologies amount to lip service if they're not accompanied by a real commitment to change. And so making amends is not so much about saying I'm sorry, but it's being sorry enough to change. If we're to be a community that works through conflicts God's way, then making prompt amends is essential to family health. And so we hold our rights loosely. We consider the mutual benefit. And then finally, if we are invested in God's process of reconciliation, then we will reflect on God's purposes. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. Paul lifts his eyes to the heavens to reflect on God's purposes. For perhaps, Paul writes, he was for this reason parted from you for a while that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In this section, Paul starts by using that word perhaps. I think what Paul's doing here is he's being careful not to presume on God's plan and purpose. 
He's not presuming that he knows exactly what God is doing, but he believes that God is doing something here. And he wants Philemon to see that perhaps the hand of God might have had a part in Onesimus leaving and coming to Rome. Now Paul's not saying that the wrongs were inspired by God, but he's saying that this broken relationship between Onesimus and Philemon can be used for good. Paul's basic assumption is that God, who transformed Onesimus, wants to bring about reconciliation. How about you? Have you ever thought about how God might be at work in your life right now in regards to a friend or a family member who you are involved in some sort of strife with? What's God trying to tell you, to teach you, to show you? You know, it's one thing to hear about how God uses someone else's difficult circumstances for the good, like Philemon and Onesimus, but it's quite another thing when we apply it to ourselves, to the people that we love. What is God doing? None of us can fully understand the depths of God's ways. But what we see in this story is the mystery of God at work. We can't straighten out the lines of our own paths or the paths of others. But God can. He can turn the worst case scenario for the good. Healing hearts and mending relationships along the way. I think the story of Onesimus helps us to see that even in our darkest moments, our deepest times of despair, even as a result of our most destructive choices, that God can bring meaning and goodness and, yes, even reconciliation. Philemon lost a slave for a while so that he could gain him back forever. It's as if Paul says, Onesimus will always be yours, Philemon, but on a whole new level, not as a possession but as a brother. You see, God can work through our weaknesses and his greatest purpose is always reconciliation. And so as we finish up, what can we apply to our own relational conflicts? I'll give you three quick things. First of all, in the same way that Paul surrenders his rights, we need to get our pride and our desire for inappropriate control out of the way. That doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth. doesn't mean that we don't set up healthy boundaries. But it does mean that we allow others the dignity to decide for themselves the obedience that Christ demands. We can't fix others as much as we want to. And so this challenges us to rely on the Lord and his assurance that he is in control and that he loves everyone. The second thing we need to do is examine our motivation. Take a moral inventory. Is selfishness or pride fueling my responses in the midst of this crisis? You see, conflicts arise when there are at least two people 
promoting competing agendas. Now this kind of conflict won't exist if both people are concerned about the interest of the other. And so when we stop looking out for ourselves and start seeking agreement, the issue is no longer what do I want, but how can I help? It's not being right, but being right becomes less important than being united to a single purpose. And then finally, we need to seek God's perspective. The question is not what they need to learn or what they should do, but what can I learn? Perhaps God places us in the midst of conflict at times for a purpose. To reveal what needs to be changed in our hearts so that we can learn to rely on his resources or to teach us a deep lesson in humility and acceptance and grace. And so may the Lord bless and guide each of us in our journey of changing the world one relationship at a time. Let's pray together.